Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Good morning and welcome. Thank you for coming to CSIS. Thank you for watching online on this gorgeous fall day. I just got back from Bangladesh yesterday and all of a sudden I'm like, it's fall. I don't know how it happens. Beautiful this morning. Uh, my name is Kimberly Flowers, and for the last four and a half years, I've been directing our global food security team. I want to first congrats, um, give congrats, sorry, I'm a little jet-lagged, give congratulations to Christian Mann for his great report that we are launching today. I'd also like to thank Eilish Nabilchi and Carolyn Hirshhorn for their contributions to the report and to today's event. Today's conversation and, of course, the launch of this great report is really a suite of materials and events that we've been doing here at CSIS related to climate change and food security. We did an event, um, I think it was two weeks ago, on climate change, political instability in Africa. That's online if you want to watch it. I will shamelessly um, plug uh, a report that Christian, myself, and Chase Sova have authored on food security and climate change that comes out next week. Um, it's a policy brief, so it's not a long report. That policy brief is on food security and climate change. And even though it's not incredibly lengthy, it's got a lot to it. I think it'll be a great resource to this conversation. For those who are taking the annual pilgrimage, I call it, to Iowa next week for the World Food Prize, um, I will be moderating um, a conversation on the main stage on the Borlaug Dialogue on the last day on climate change and conflict. So if you're coming to Iowa, please join us there. And also, Christian may mention this, but he's also working on a three-country docu-series. He just got back from Kenya, he's headed back to Nepal, and then to El Salvador, looking at how climate change is affecting smallholder farmers in three very different country contexts. And I have to say, you know, in Bangladesh, where I was last week, I was with a congressional delegation with CARE, and we were predominantly looking at nutrition programs, but of course climate change came up many times because Bangladesh is one of, if not the most densely populated country in the world, and it's also one of the most susceptible to um, climate uh, volatility, whether that's severe flooding or other unpredictable natural, or, um, natural events or natural disasters. I, when I think about climate change, which I've been thinking about a lot as we've been working on this piece and all the events that we've been doing, the word that keeps coming back to me is injustice. There's this feeling that, not even a feeling, there's just this is such evident that those who are being impacted the most have the least. And I really feel like it's our duty um, having this platform that we have at CSIS and the work that we do of how we can bring that climate change issue and that injustice to what we do as we think about food security, agriculture, and nutrition. So my job today is really to introduce to you um, our first speaker, our keynote speaker. Um, he'll also be joining the panel, Manish Bapna. Um, I won't read his long bio because you have it in your hands with the handout. He um, is with the World Resource Institute. He's a well-known international development expert. His background includes working on rural development and water at the World Bank. He's done a lot of work with international finance institutes and or institutions and finance in general. But 
But I first met him in Copenhagen last month. Um, I was there moderating the World Food Summit, and uh, it was a really great event that climate change was quite at the center of the conversation as we think about global food systems. And um, Manish was the only speaker, as the moderator, I got to ask questions of the speakers after they, after they spoke, and Manish said to me, ask me some question about resilience. I was like, okay, you got it. Um, and I think resilience is one of those words that, it's not new, right? It's been around for quite some time. It's definitely been elevated in conversations, and I think there's a lot of different um, understandings of what resilience means. We've certainly seen it really rise to the surface in terms of U.S. government strategy, whether you're the global food security strategy, whether you're talking the reorg of USAID, I'm sure a lot of that will come up today. But it's incredibly important. It helps bridge that divide between the humanitarian and development space. It also helps reverse any backsliding on development gains that we've had. And I know that Manish will help us sort of frame that conversation this morning as we think about it a little bit from the big picture. He'll also talk about the Global Commission on Adaptation, uh, which is also co-chaired, by the way, um, by Bill Gates. You might have heard that name. Um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is also who very generously funds our work, so we're thankful for that connection. Manish, over to you. Good morning, everyone. Absolute uh, delight and privilege uh, to be here with all of you today to talk about uh, such an incredibly important topic. Thank you, Kimberly, for a very kind introduction, and Christian, for what I think is going to be a stimulating discussion on this report regarding resilience and Nepal. Um, what, what I would like to do just to help kind of set the context for today's discussion is just spend a few minutes to answer or to talk about kind of three sets of questions. One, why, why are, is kind of the topic of adaptation or resilience becoming so much more prominent or visible today than it was even two or three years ago? Right? Kind of what's happening in the world that's creating that? I'm going to spend quite a few minutes talking a little bit about what needs to happen to build adaptation and resilience? This has been a question that people have been grappling with for quite some time, but it's been kind of the forgotten stepchild. Most people have focused on mitigation. We haven't seen adaptation at the scale, the urgency we need to see. What will it take to really accelerate advance action on adaptation? And then I'll say just a couple of words on how I think this report so well kind of positions us to take some of the steps we need forward to really make some progress uh, on this issue. So let me, let, let me start with this question about why focusing, why this focus on resilience now? And I think, I think it, is, it is fair to say that the impacts from climate change are happening here and now, right? We're beginning to see much, much more visibly the impacts. I'm not gonna read you the statistics, they're pretty well known, but this is happening at a time when we're seriously off track in terms of meeting our climate commitments according to the Paris Climate Agreement, right? So we're off track to meet less than ambitious goals while these impacts are happening here and now. Just a couple weeks ago, we had the UN Secretary General um, uh, kind of convene the Climate Action Summit. This was in New York. Uh, I don't know, was anyone here at the Climate Action Summit? Did anyone go? So this was a really important moment in 2019 where the focus was on ambition. In 2015, really surprised the world with this climate agreement that people came together, agreed on a fairly ambitious target, but we knew that the commitments made 
were not going to get us to the goals of the Paris Agreement. And so the idea for this summit in 2019 was that people, countries, would come to the summit, step up, increase the ambition of what climate commitments they can make so we could get closer to actually achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement. What has happened, however, is the political context for climate has changed profoundly in the four years since the Paris Agreement. Incredible leadership back then, and we're seeing quite a noticeable lack of leadership today. So what we had at this climate summit was some really, really bold commitments. 67 countries actually announced that they would go, um, that they would actually increase the ambition of their climate commitments. 77 countries said that they would actually go carbon neutral. But collectively, these countries represent about 8 to 10% of global emissions. So what we're seeing is this great ambition from small countries. And the big major economies, absolutely absent. Either we had some of the countries, some of the leaders come on stage, make speeches, but not announce anything new. We also had a number of countries, including the United States, Brazil, Japan, Australia, not even stepping up and actually making a speech at the summit. So we have this situation where, where we're just not where we need to be. And it just reminds me, Kimberly, when we were, Kimberly mentioned we met in Copenhagen, and just talk about a tale of two countries that have very differing ambitions around climate. Cope Denmark made a commitment just in the last elections, which were just a few months ago, to reduce emissions by 70% below 1990 levels by the year 2030, in 10 years, 70% below 1990 levels. Most ambitious 2030 commitment that I am aware of. And yet at this country, we saw emissions rise 3.4% last year, right? So real, real need to see much greater ambition for major economies. Um, so what does this mean for climate change? Right now, so, so science kind of says that we need to limit climate to about one and a half degrees, right? It was two degrees before. A lot of the recent science says that's too risky. We should come down to one and a half degrees. Who here thinks that, just let's take a show of hands here just on climate and kind of where we think people will be. Um, how many people here think we will stop warming at about one and a half degrees? Just raise your hand. Anyone? Two degrees? Does anyone think we'll be able to hold temperature to two degrees? Two and a half degrees? Three degrees? Four degrees? So about two and a half to three degrees, right? So this is an optimistic crowd, actually, because the current projections are that we will increase temperature based on commitments already made, if they are fulfilled, between 2.7 and 3.7 degrees. And we're trending on the high end of that. We're actually about three and a half to four degree trajectory. So we need to see a lot more ambition to get down to two, two and a half, much less get to one and a half. So, and, and remember, the temperature's already increased by 1.1 degrees already today. And that is a global average. What that does is it masks a lot of variation between different places around the world. And it's also important to note that 1.1 degrees is the global average over land which is where most of us live, it's actually over one and a half degrees to date. Right? So significant warming already in place. So in that context, 
I think there's a lot of, a lot of concern, interest to talk about resilience. So with that, I wanted to say a few words about, so what, what, is, what do we need to do to build greater resilience? Why, why hasn't it had the attention that it needs? So about a year ago, we worked with the Dutch government to actually establish a commission that Kimberly mentioned. It was a commission that is currently ongoing, co-chaired by Ban Ki-moon, Bill Gates, and Kristalina Georgieva. Kristalina Georgieva, as you know, the incoming head of the IMF, really powerful commission. We had about 30 commissioners. We had 20 countries at the head of state level endorse the commission, including China, India, Germany, the United Kingdom, Canada, and so forth. So really, really impressive group of people. And about two, about three, four weeks ago, they released this report. It's not the only thing we're going to do where there's a set of a year of action that follows the release of this report. But this report intended to help lay out a much bolder, more visible agenda for the world on what to do around adaptation. And Corey Park, my colleague there, has some copies of the report for those who may want to have a copy. But what I wanted to do was just to share very briefly the kind of four key messages from this year of work we've done with the commission around trying to create a new narrative and a new agenda to really stimulate much greater attention on adaptation. The first point that we wanted to, that the commission really came out with, is that there is a very strong moral argument to act on climate change. This gets back to what Kimberly mentioned. Those who contributed the least to climate change are suffering the most. We know climate change is going to exacerbate poverty. It's going to exacerbate inequality, right? It's kind of demonstrated. And just to give you some numbers on what this may mean in the future, in the next 10 years, left unchecked, climate change will push 100 million people below the poverty line. Agricultural yields by 2050 can fall on average by up to 30% with significant variation in geographies. Up to 5 billion people may lack secure water resources year-round by 2050. Now, some of that would have been even in the absence of climate change, but climate change makes that problem much worse. The cost to coastal urban areas will be over a trillion dollars a year. So significant impacts. So the moral argument, the justice argument, is unassailable. The second real message that the commission came out with is there are strong economic arguments to act on climate change. We looked at the economics of about five different types of adaptation interventions. We looked at early warning systems, we looked at mangroves, we looked at resilient infrastructure, we looked at more efficient allocation and use of water, and we looked at dryland agriculture. And we looked at investments that would build resilience through those five areas. Benefit-cost ratios are four to one, five to one on average for these investments, meaning for every dollar we invest in resilience, we get four to five dollars of net economic benefits in return. Over the next 10 years, if we invested $1.8 trillion in these five areas, $7.1 trillion in net economic benefits. Why is that? Because these investments not only help us avoid significant loss. You think of early warning systems in Bangladesh. Bangladesh was mentioned earlier this morning. Huge, huge returns. Small investment. You get a massive reduction in avoided losses. 
Bangladesh, just to continue with that example, in 1970s, you had a cyclone sitter that devastated the country. 300,000 people were killed. Similar cyclone took place about 10 years ago. Several thousand people were killed. Similar cyclone of scale took place last year. A couple dozen people were killed. Massive reduction in death and destruction from significant investments in early warning systems, community infrastructure, the institutions that would enable people to understand when disaster is about to strike and to take shelter. Massive returns on those types of investments. But not only is it avoided losses, many investments in adaptation also can improve economic productivity. They can create stronger social and environmental benefits. Think of drip irrigation, right? Really useful when you have a drought. But even when you don't have a drought, you're using water more productively. Think of mangroves. Very helpful if there's a storm to weather a surge. But they also create um, really healthy areas for fisheries. They also provide recreational opportunities. So these co-benefits are part of what make adaptation investments so economically attractive. But even though the economics are very good, we don't see the scale. We don't see the pickup. And why is that? Several barriers get in the way. Short-term biases. Risk remains hidden. A lot of times, actually, the risk, the climate signal, that risk remains hidden. Institutional fragmentation. A lot of times, responding to those types of actual challenges, difficult because of difficult coordination between governments, uh, between government ministries, between local, national governments. Financial system right now doesn't recognize climate risks. But perhaps one of the most pernicious barriers is that, that the, the poor, those that are most vulnerable, those that are at the crosshairs of climate impacts, have the least political voice. Right? Power structures, power dynamics get in the way. There's a reason the Montreal Protocol that dealt with ozone depletion was such a successful quick treaty. It affected the urban middle class in rich countries. Yet climate change, which oftentimes affects the poorest, has had a much more difficult time to get traction because of who ultimately is paying the price. So given these barriers, what the commission has called for, the kind of third big message, is that we need to see fundamental revolutions in knowledge, in planning, and in finance. In knowledge, we need to make risk visible in a much, much, now that's clear in Nepal, but too many places around the world that climate risk is not yet visible. People don't know precisely what that risk is. Look at this country. We continue to subsidize flood insurance, encouraging homeowners to buy land and build property in areas that are going to be prone from hurricanes. Right? We need to make that risk visible, and we need to share what works. Planning. We are moving from a world where historical projections of straight lines and smooth curves we now need to look at how you make decisions under much greater uncertainty. Historical projections don't work for future planning. And that means we need to also think about how we integrate climate risk, climate adaptation into development planning in a much, much more serious way. It can't be treated as an add-on. It needs to be mainstreamed across how we look at development overall. And finally, on finance, we need to mobilize significant funds to accelerate adaptation. And this is not just about, not just about international support for adaptation, how important that may be. It is also about how we look at domestic resources, 
how we look at private finance to take into account climate risk in a much more serious way. So in short, adaptation is really about doing development differently. It's about doing development better. <clears throat> and the fourth and final message that the Commission laid out was how do you inject this revolution of how we reimagine knowledge, planning, and finance into those key economic systems that are most at risk from climate change. We look at the food sector, we look at water, we look at natural environment, we look at cities, we look at infrastructure, and we talk about what are the entry points in these sectors to best be able to integrate resilience into how, how these sectors need to unfold in the future. So again, I'll talk a little bit more about this uh, during the panel, but I wanted to give you a little bit of a flavor of what this report did. Um, finally, it's much more than just a report. So the commission issued this report a couple weeks before the climate summit. Last week in New York, or a week and a half ago in New York, we launched the year of action. So now what we're going to be doing is actually translating the recommendations from the report in a set of action tracks on some of these issues regarding food, regarding water, regarding cities, regarding infrastructure. And we're going to lead up to a set of major commitments that'll be made during the year and in the run-up to the climate conference in the United Kingdom in Glasgow, if, if that's, I guess, still part of the United Kingdom in next year, but uh, in Glasgow in, uh, in 2020. So very exciting stuff and would welcome everyone's engagement in that. The final thing I just want to do before I close is just say a few words about this report and why I think this report actually really leverages and helps advance some of the messages that came from this commission. There were three, three themes in this report that Christian um, uh, drafted that I think are quite relevant to today's conversation. The first is this point about integration. He really talks about how we can't look at climate or adaptation in isolation from agriculture or food security. Lots of risks are facing farmers in Nepal, all around the world. One can't look just at adaptation. One has to look at climate risks in the context of the broader, broader set of risks, challenges, opportunities that are facing these farmers. How do we bake climate risk into how we look at agriculture, livelihood development in Nepal? And the same is true even for the donor agencies. This point about integration, again, clearly makes a strong argument that we need to see USAID take a more explicit position on climate, but it is about how you integrate climate into USAID's thematic priorities. So the first point around integration. The second thing that I thought he really played very prominently an important point about is institutions. The role of local institutions to be best placed to manage a lot of these climate risks. One of the things that the commission came out with, one of the things that Christian came out with, was the important role of local institutions because of how context-specific these risks and responses need to be. And the final point, I think, that he raised that was quite incredibly important is a point about inclusion. The issues of women, the issues of the particularly poor, how do we think about those that are most vulnerable and ensure that what we, they, we do really benefits them is a really, really important point. And in that context, he raises the very pertinent point that we cannot look at this purely as a technical problem. We have to look at it also as a political problem. 
and how we think about giving more voice, giving more agency to those that are most affected. So those points around integration, institutions, and inclusion, I think, are just really great contributions from Christian uh, on this report. So really looking forward to the discussion. Uh, delighted to be here with all of you. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. And good morning to those who are joining us online as well. My name is Christian Mann. I'm the research fellow in the Global Food Security Project here at CSIS. So excited to have this awesome group of people with us. Manish, thanks for those really fantastic comments. Um, so what I want to do over the next hour is, uh, first of all, give Carolyn Anusta an opportunity to provide some opening reactions. I'll facilitate a panel discussion between um, all of us, and then we'll open it up for Q and A. Um, you have the bios for all of these great people in your handout, so I'm not going to belabor that. But um, Carol is recently uh, moved back from uh, USAID Nepal mission to work in uh, the the headquarters here. Um, so welcome back, Carol. Anusta, I have to say, our invitation to Anusta, who lives in Kathmandu, was. Um, relatively recent and it's a small bureaucratic miracle that she's here bureaucratic miracle that she's here with us today so a special thanks to USAID and Nepal for making that happen um, so let's just start with um, Anusta I'd like to give you a, you know five to seven minutes to provide some opening framing com comments uh, thanks good morning First of all, I would like to thank CSIS and USAID for providing me the opportunity to speak on this platform. Nepal is a small country, but it is rich in biodiversity, and it's geographically and culturally diverse as well. We have mountain risen on the top with very cold and harsh climate. And then there is hilly risen in the middle with moderate climate. And then there is lowland Tarai region with hot and tropical climate. When we talk about climate change in Nepal, we need to speak about the cases of too much and too little water. Uh, rainfall has become highly erratic in the past few decades. Sometimes we have longer period of dry spells, and it has affected our staple crops, such as rice, that require large amount of water. And on the other hand, there are cases of short span of heavy rainfall that destroys our crops, vegetables, and even removes the fertile topsoil. Climate, ch climate change is hard, especially for smallholder farmers that rely on rainfall and have and ha lack livelihood, diversified livelihood opportunities. These are also the farmers who are unable to afford the sophisticated irrigation facilities. And in lowland Tarai region of Nepal, there are affluent farmers who use groundwater. However, too much extraction of groundwater also means reducing of water table, and it may further threaten the water scarcity situation. Again, when we talk about the case of too much water, we also need to discuss on climate-based disasters in Nepal, such as floods and landslides. Because every year during monsoon season, these disasters 
the damage the crop, infrastructures, kill people. And I've been to different river basins of Nepal where I got opportunity to speak with flood-affected communities. These people shared that uh, flood has destroyed not only their crops and crops and infrastructures, but also their valuable land, because the land is completely deposited in sand and are no longer useful. So these farmers are now engaged in daily labor activities with minimum income and are further pushed towards poverty. Many people perceive that increase in temperature is beneficial for agriculture. It might be true to some extent because the crops which would be grown in lower altitude could also be grown in higher altitude, but increase in temperature also means increase in pests and diseases. If there is increase in pests and diseases, then farmers will start to use more chemical fertilizers and more pesticides. These chemicals will end up in our water bodies, increase its nutrient, promote algal growth, deplete the water oxygen level, and also affect the aquatic biodiversity. And if aquatic biodiversity is affected, then it will affect our farm, it will affect our fisher communities as well. And since the food that we eat is heavily embedded in chemicals, we can also question the quality of food that we are eating. Uh, Kathmandu is facing the problem of soaring food prices. And one of the reasons is the recent rainfall that destroyed our vegetables. And another reason is most of the agricultural land are being converted into urban centers. And we rely on imported food from peri-urban regions and India as well. Therefore, this rising price in Kathmandu is relatively higher for lower income group. So when we discuss about climate change, we need to gen discuss from gender perspective as well. Because in Nepal, most of the youths, especially the males, have migrated abroad. That means it's the female who mostly looks after the household and farming activities as well. Therefore, climate change is going to be harsh for these females. So if there is problem of food insufficiency or reduction in crop production, it will be female who will first keep off their food. They might take food in smaller quantity or even skip their meals for the sake of their children and family and are likely to have impact upon their health. In ISET Nepal, we have tried to understand the resilience and adaptive capacity through system analysis. For that, we have categorized the system into three parts, core, secondary, and tertiary. Core system includes food, water, energy, land, everything that fulfills the basic needs of our life. Secondary system includes communication and mobility. And the tertiary system includes um, social network, financial services, health services, and education. Um, core system is foundational, and, and it, also it also affects the quality of our life. That means if the 
core system is of good quality, it will, it will, we will be closer towards resilience and adaptive capacity. And if core system is of poor quality, it will, we will be far from the resilience and adaptive capacity. And likewise, secondary and tertiary system will help to strengthen the core system and will build and will help to build strategies against climate stress as well. Since I have limited time, we can discuss more about it in upcoming discussions. So yeah, thank you. Thanks, Carol. Over to you. Good morning, everyone, and thank you uh, for having me. Um, so I just wanted to take a few minutes and talk about USAID's roles in our, role in our activities in Nepal. Um, and I was very happy to hear Manish and uh, Kimberly discuss um, inclusion, because I do feel that inclusion really sits at the center of USAID activities within Nepal. Um, for those of you who may not know, gender, uh, caste, and ethnicity is um, and ethnicity-based uh, social exclusion is um, really deeply embedded into Nepali society, and it's a determinant of poverty, hunger, as well as poor nutrition. Um, Nepal's diverse geographic and ethnic composition, coupled with social exclusion practices, it leads to uh, wide variations in health and nutrition indicators across the country, both within and between castes. So for an example, um, Overall poverty rate is 25% within the country. However, if you take a look at the, the mid and far western uh, section in the mid-hill area, you'll see poverty rates reaching as high as 37%. Now, if you disaggregate that even further and look at ethnic divisions, the Dalits, the traditionally um, uh, lower caste, or uh, traditionally marginalized populations, that, that rate goes reaches as high as 43%. So you can start to see inclusion being a real significant issue within Nepal. Um, even when you look at the hunger indicators, um, in the areas where Feed the Future has been operational, that's in the Turai, the far western, midwestern hill area, um, 20% of the Dalit population experienced moderate or severe uh, hunger. Um, this is according to our 2016 um, uh, Global Food Security Strategy Country uh, Program. Um, and that's compared to 6% of the Brahmin Chetri, which are a higher caste, higher wealth group, um, and 3.4% of the indigenous population. Um, and when you look at the minimum dietary diversity, more Brahmin and Chetri uh, populations are more likely to meet that minimum dietary requirement than you would see in some of the more marginalized populations. So inclusion and um, gender and social inclusion is a real issue when we look at Nepal. I just wanted to, to frame that and make people aware. Um, and I think the other point that has been raised uh, multiple times is just related to uh, Nepal's high vulnerability to climate shocks. Um, it was mentioned in the report that it's the fourth highest on the climate in, uh, risk index. Um, as uh, we've also seen by the floods that uh, the rates of uh, precipitation are a major concern, and it's either too much water or too little water, and this has serious impacts on Nepal's biodiversity, its forests, its agriculture uh, productivity, as well as the country's ability to produce electricity from hydropower. These, um, these climate trends and the variability are one of the a number of shocks that rural households face. 
uh, that keep them from rising up out of poverty and hunger and uh, keep them out of, um, keep them from backsliding back into poverty. USAID is taking a broader look at uh, environment and natural resource management um, issues in the context of development, and our Feed the Future activities and programs in Nepal focus on improvements um, such as uh, around sustainable agriculture systems. Um, so I'd like to take a few minutes and talk about the programs uh, within USAID Nepal. Um, as was mentioned, I've, I've just coming out of three years spent um, managing the, um, the Feed the Future environment, the energy, and the resilience activities. And so um, I'm very passionate about these, these programs. Um, within, as I had mentioned, gender and social inclusion is a key issue in Nepal. And it really sits at the center of the country development cooperation strategy, which USAID uses to implement its programs. Um, and we use it, uh, Jesse, or gender social inclusion, as a key issue across our, um, our uh, education, democracy, and governance, our health programs, our water hygiene and sanitation, our environment programs, and our agriculture activities, as well as our resilience programs. Um, we do have a full-time gender uh, specialist, uh, gender and social inclusion expert. They assist us by reviewing our strategy documents, they um, assist us in reviewing scopes of work, um, uh, solicitations to ensure that we are looking at social inclusion as a way of creating greater equity and greater inclusion, uh, both in governance as well as uh, agricultural systems. Um, the gender advisor also supports us in training staff, both mission staff and as well as program staff on uh, making sure that we are constantly uh, looking at inclusion as a way of advancing, um, advancing Nepal and also making sure that we do not uh, see decreases, see that, so that we see reductions in poverty. Um, so within that, I wanna talk a little bit about some of the resilience activities um, that we're doing. We are focusing on the more marginalized populations. Uh, by nature of the selection of the areas where we work in the far western, uh, the, the mid and far western hill area, as well as in areas on the Terai that have the higher poverty and um, poor nutrition indicators. That's the area where we're focusing on. And um, one example I want to discuss is of the Pahal activity. It's a resilience-focused activity. Because of the area where we're working, there's very limited access to um, banks and uh, financial institutions. So, so our activity has worked with 82 institutions to um, improve their technical and professional capacity to understand the community's needs and develop financial products that are more targeted to the poor and the socially excluded. Um, they've done things such as social, uh, such as savings accounts designed for pregnant women or mothers or the elderly. Um, these cooperatives have also recognized the importance that livestock plays and, their, and the role that insurance can play as a safety net for these um, farmers, recognizing that smallholders and land poor farmers generally will use, um, rely on livestock uh, as a savings mechanism. And... Um, uh, a loss or a shock related to a livestock uh, death can be significant to a household that is, that's, has a very marginal um, income. So they're currently working with placing insurance agents within these cooperatives so that they can link 
the uh, vulnerable households into uh, insurance schemes that will uh, allow for livestock um, insurance programs. Other examples are um, around the agriculture and uh, resilience activities supported um, by farmers that um, were USAID is focusing on reaching outreach to farmers, input suppliers, processors and small and medium-sized enterprises, and we've been able to uh, um, unlock financing at $5.5 million for in rural loans to go out um, to invest in productive, uh, productive assets uh, related strictly to agriculture. We've also been able to unlock about a million dollars related to non-farm productive assets, so people can build their asset base and start to diversify their livelihoods, so they're not just reliant um, on agriculture, which will then uh, further increase their uh, resilience. Um, we've also been able to reach well over 250,000 farmers last year, um, with new uh, technologies such as improved seed varieties and soil uh, management fertility, soil fertility management practices, these things also assist in um, farmers being able to increase their yield. Uh, it was mentioned, uh, Anusta had mentioned the, um, the concerns with uh, pesticides going out um, and getting uh, ground, uh, groundwater pollution. One of the focus areas we also have is an integrated pest management activity, which is looking at biopesticides, so trying to reduce the need for chemical pesticides by using uh, whether it's a pheromone trap or something that's more um, environmentally uh, friendly. Um, over the year, uh, we were able to increase the um, sales and the economic activity by $14 million. Um, which may not sound like a significant amount, but when you're talking about increasing household incomes by over $200, that, that's pretty significant when you're talking about marginalized populations in Nepal. So those are some of the things that we've um, managed to achieve over the past couple years and some of the efforts that we're putting in to try to build the resilience uh, of smallholder farmers. So. Um, and one additional uh, program that I do want to mention, which is we're seeing significant um, impact from, is a business literacy program which targets women. So last year we were able to reach over 9,000 um, people, with the majority of those being women, uh, recognizing that the importance of a financial literacy um, of highly vulnerable women allows them to have greater access to markets and greater participation in the market system. Um, this uh, activity provides an empowerment for women which also builds their resilience and, and um, it contributes to their ability to be able to um, manage uh, shocks uh, without slipping back into poverty. So I just wanted to highlight some of the actions that were highlighted in the report and some of the things that we're doing that um, the Nepal mission, I guess that's not we anymore, but the Nepal, Nepal mission was uh, actually engaging in. So I hope that's uh, informative. Great. Thanks, Carol. I just have to say one thing that's nice about this panel is just the different scales folks are working at. We have Anish talking about sort of global adaptation initiatives and then Anusta and Carol talking about sort of project level stuff. So I think we should have, um, I have some hard questions for all of you. <laughs> Um, my first question is for uh, Manish and Carol. You know, there's, it seems like we're, there's all these different sort of 
quasi somewhat overlapping systems of adaptation from a policy perspective. You have the Global Commission doing its thing. You have the government of Nepal doing its own set of things related to adaptation. You have USAID doing its another set of things. How are all of these adaptation plans and systems meant to work together in a way that's coherent for farmers? Um, if I'm a Nepali farmer, am I meant to sign up for lots of different initiatives? I mean, I'm, I'm being uh, a little bit facetious, but I think the point is, how do we make sure there's a sort of a coherent harmonization of adaptation initiatives uh, to ensure efficiency and efficacy? No, it's, um, it's, it, it's, a very, it's a very good question um, more broadly that what, what I think we're seeing in, in both the climate and development space is, is an incredible proliferation of initiatives that rarely, that rarely speak to each other. So the motivation for the question, I think, is, 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 is strong. Um, so so the, one of the nice things that Nepal has done a particularly good job in, but I, I, I'm going to defer to you to tell me whether it indeed is good or not, is there has been, over the past five, 10 years, a real emphasis to try to get um, countries to develop kind of national adaptation plans informed by local adaptation plans. So to me, the, the, the primacy of that process, if the integrity of the process is done well, meaning that there has been a whole of society, whole of government approach to preparing those plans, if that's been done well, that should be where the starting point is. And both what USAID, other donor agencies may do should be in response to that. What the Global Commission on Adaptation is aiming to do is in response to that. So, so I think that there needs to be um, a lot of uh, deference given to those processes, and a lot of support to ensure those processes are done well. Because I think what we have seen, unfortunately, is fairly uneven the quality of how those national and local adaptation plans have been prepared so far. But my sense is Nepal actually has been better than most in the process of doing that. Yeah, Anusta, I didn't mean to uh, cut you out. You can obviously jump in too. Um, uh, USAID through our Haryoban activity is working on developing, working with local communities to develop their local um, adaptation uh, action plans, plans for action, um, and uh, trying to create that linkage between the local planning and the national planning uh, process. So w we are working with local communities on that, but then also looking at the linkage at the national level as well. So. Anusa, do you want to add anything about Nepal's NAPA? Yeah. Uh, I said Nepal has also worked on adaptation project, more specifically ecosystem-based adaptation. So what we did is we followed this approach of shared learning dialogue, where we go to the field, we teach the farmer about the climate change adaptation, and help them build their resilience options. So the options and strategies are, it came from community itself, so we hope that it will be implemented successfully. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know one thing um, that Manish said that I want to pick up on is just sort of aspiring to support country-led uh, approaches to adaptation, and that 
that feels right. It sounds good, and it's something that's consistent with USAID's um, policy framework ending the need for foreign assistance. And yet, I have to be honest, and you know, this may get a little bit awkward, but you know, when I look at the Global Commission's list of convening countries, the United States is not listed on that list of convening countries. And you know, at the Global Food Security, Food Security Project where I work, we're, we're particularly interested in American leadership on food security and adaptation, et cetera. So I guess I'm just wondering what adaptation is supposed to look like, what adaptation leadership is supposed to look like in an era where we have a president who's ambivalent at best about the reality of climate change. Um, USAID, yeah, Carol, your, your administrator has been extremely equivocal about the reality of climate science. My sense is that puts people like you, who are you know, a dedicated development professional in an extremely awkward position. Um, so I, you know, I just I have to say it. We, Carol and I were talking about this backstage. It's kind of a touchy issue because you have people like the USAID mission in Nepal who are, have no sort of um, uncertainty about the realities of climate change. And yet, if you read the, the document ending the need for foreign assistance, do you, know how, do you know how much substance of discussion there is on climate change? Almost none. So Carol, I'm just, I, 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 you didn't want me to ask this, but I have to ask it anyways. What does a person like you do about this? I'm sorry I have to go now. <laughs> Um, uh, <laughs> um, regardless of the policy, if you look at the, um, the actions that, that we're doing, if you look at the global food security strategy, the focus on sustainable agriculture really does take in the global, uh, a, a more holistic approach to agriculture. We have to look at the natural resource management, the, the natural resource base. USAID is doing a great deal around research. We're looking at ways that we can adapt agriculture to be able to be responsive. Um, in the changing environment that we're operational in, we, um, we are doing a number of research on um, drought-tolerant varieties of seeds. We're looking at how we can best build organic matter into soils to make them more productive. Um, we are focusing on what actions can be taken related to um, what actions can be taken now in order to uh, increase agricultural productivity and feed a growing, growing population, whether uh, regardless of the shocks that we face. Um, so um, I would say the efforts that we're making, especially when you look at research, research is one of the key components and is a key driver of increase in agriculture productivity and that's something that we are focusing on looking at a number of shocks um, uh, not just climatic but um, uh, pest related as well so if that's the non-answer you're looking for um, uh, we'll leave it at that but th but it's a difficult question yes thank well you. that's a, a great answer and I, you know I think like Manish had said you know it it'd be a moral abdication to just be quiet about the fact that the administrator uh, has said so little about the reality of climate change. But I appreciate the tough spot that puts you in. Um, Manish, just from your perspective, I mean, what is like this sort of specter of a retreat in American leadership on climate change mean for you and mean for, mean for the world? No, uh, one probably cannot overstate 
the impact that uh, the lack of U.S. leadership on climate action has had on global ambition to deal with the climate problem. Just, I, I really feel that. If one thinks about, uh, I, mean, I mean, the Paris Agreement was incredible. Could you imagine getting 190 some odd countries to agree? One country could veto this. 190 countries all agreed to these goals, to the concept of national commitments, to a mutual accountability mechanism, to ratcheting up ambition every five years. This was an incredible moment, and that was in no small part because of U.S. leadership. And the U.S. working night and day with China to bring a really important agreement between U.S.-China in the run-up to the Paris Agreement. It's what created kind of that level of ambition, and it, 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 it's, it's quite impressive. Um, since then, the global environment for climate ambition has fallen dramatically. One looks not only at what's happened with the Trump administration, but one looks at Brazil, one looks at Australia, um, one looks uh, at the EU, not because of a lack of ambition, but because of a variety of other problems that are plaguing the region that are preventing it from exercising the same level of ambition that they had historically. And that then, you know, China and India are actually acting on this issue. But in the absence of more leadership from rich countries, they're not yet internationally stepping up to do more. So this is an issue. But one should not conflate the unwillingness of the Trump administration to do more on climate with at least some early encouraging signs within some parts of the Republican Party, but also to recognize Washington isn't the United States. There's an incredible outpouring of support on climate action from, uh, from, from many places, uh, states, cities, and the private sector in this country. You're right that the US did not come on to the Global Commission on Adaptation, but we did bring on the Republican mayor in Miami as an interesting voice on this commission. Yeah, and I have to say, you know, in, in, in Carol's defense, my impression of the view from, from Nepal is that Carol and the team that she led, you know, are extremely committed to the issues uh, that are arising as a result of climate change. So it's, it's certainly no critique of, 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 of that group of people. Um, I want to ask another difficult question, um, this one for Anusta. You know, Kimberly mentioned uh, sort of this theme of justice and the uh, sort of exceedingly iniquitous dynamic where you have countries that have done little to create the problem that creates the need for um, adaptation are being are being forced to adapt. Um, so when we think about adaptation in Nepal and we think about the government of Nepal's sort of very flagrant rhetoric about social inclusion. I'm just curious if you think that's theater or you think that's real. I mean, a number of people I talk to are not convinced. They think it's, 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 it's the government. It's, for example, the Constitution has a lot of, pays a lot of lip service to inclusion because it's, it's the, the day that we live in. It's the zeitgeist. Uh, what's your impression? Are there, are, there, are there material places where the government of Nepal should be applauded, and are there places where we should push back and say, that's superficial? Well, uh, Nepal people are divided by ethnicity, caste, and even economic status. So 
people with higher caste and better economic situation have better access to resources and network. Our government do have very strong policy on social inclusion, but when it comes to practice, it's more like, like it says that 33% is for the women. But how strong is the representation? So the representation is for the sake of the representation or the women voices are actually heard? I mean, the marginalized people have less access to network and I have mentioned resources as well. So what is really necessary is to include them in the decision making and planning process and make sure that voices are heard. So we should prevent the cases of elite capture. So not just women, it's also the Dalit, the marginalized community should come forward and we, it is very necessary to address the issues too. Yeah, thanks, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I just had another great follow-up question for you and it's slipping my mind, so let me move on to another question. Uh, just to change gears slightly, Carol, I mean, I think a lot of us, um, well, this is kind of a, a, a twin, maybe a twin question. Um, so one question is, what? just to zoom out a little bit, why is the resilience context so different in Southeast Asia and Nepal vis-a-vis -vis places like the Sahel and the Horn of Africa where USAID is working? And to that point, you know, we're lucky to have a Nepali person on the stage with us. Is there something that's just missing from this report? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot missing, but yeah, what's sure. missing from the report that this group of people and those watching online needs to understand something that's different about um, context where we typically associate resilience yeah, works, sure. such as East and West Africa? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I went through the report twice, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's like something that is, the research is similar to the ones that we do in ICET Nepal, and I really appreciate the points related to social inclusion. But you can also focus on diversified livelihood opportunities, like because it will bring you closure to resilience and adaptive capacity. Like the, the farmers, are they just engaged in farming activities, or even they have like diversified livelihood opportunities? And another thing that you can also focus is on youth involvement in agriculture because the youths of Nepal are now not so interested in agriculture because they see it as a very tedious and hardworking task. So maybe like the available of seed funding or more capacity building activities might help to encourage more youths in the farm. So you can also go through the sections such as youths and agriculture. Um, just uh, to talk a little bit about resilience, um, I, I've been very fortunate to have lived and worked and um, served uh, in USAID missions in Africa as well as um, in Asia. And um, these, are, these are my opinions uh, related to the difference between Africa and Asia. What I've what I um, would break this down is to Asia you see more rapid, uh, onset disasters. <clears throat> you see a lot more related to flood as opposed to drought conditions, where in Africa you'll see those large 
droughts that will affect multiple countries and very require very large humanitarian responses. In Asia, you do see quite a lot of smaller um, idiosyncratic shocks that affect, affect more people at either a household or a community, a localized level. So for example, in Nepal, you see quite a number of landslides that are affecting populations, very targeted, very small pockets of population, preventing them from accessing markets or getting their, um, getting their agricultural products, uh, production out um, to a market. Um, the, so you see these smaller household uh, programs. Um, resilience um, efforts, you do see significant and very large safety net programs that are um, put into uh, uh, hosted by government systems, so such as the Productive Safety Net in Ethiopia, where you're seeing governments really taking an effort to increase the resilience of the population and create that safety net so that when people slip back into, uh, when they get hit by a shock, such as a, um, a drought, that people don't have to sell all their productive assets. They can actually recover from, um, from a shock. So there is a safety net there. Um, to me, those are the two most significant pieces that, um, that I would identify. So I want to leave a little bit of time for Q&A from the audience, but I have one more question for everyone. We're going to start with Manish and come down this way. Please keep your answers short. So, you know, something we emphasize in the report is a concern that I have that adaptation becomes another sort of becomes uh, rescinded to the realm of the technical and becomes just another sort of intervention that's um, sort of not integrated or baked into the DNA of development programming, as, as, as Manish said. Um, and it's true that we need drought-tolerant seed varieties, we need early warning systems, we need index insurance, but what about the fundamental political transformations that in reality are the origin of a lot of the vulnerabilities that we're seeing in places like Nepal? How do we ensure that adaptation is sufficiently political? Um, and when I pose this question, I'd like, to give, I'd like to ask each of you to give me as concrete and practical of an example of how we could see to that as possible. So again, the question is, when we think about adaptation from wherever you sit, how do we ensure that adaptation to climate change doesn't just become a set of technical activities, but integrated into the political fabric of the different contexts where we're talking about? Super easy question. Let's start with Manish. So, uh one, so w one of the things that I think we need to do to make it, you know, in, in the way you proposed, uh, for it to be beyond technical, is to devolve a lot of the resources and authority of how to respond to climate impacts to local actors. So this issue of devolution is true for many facets of development. It's particularly true for adaptation in light of the context specificity and the heterogeneity that we see on these issues. At the moment, and I have it in the report, I don't recall the number, but I think it's somewhere between you know, one and 5%, or it's like less than a percent of actual climate funding is devolved to local actors. So there's a lot more that we can do to both create an environment where authority is given to local institutions, resources are given to local institutions, and we find the right interplay between community-based institutions and local governments 
which we oftentimes forget the importance of the interface between the two to create more institutionally and financially sustainable models to build resilience. I, I really appreciate what you um, had just said there. I, I agree fully. I think that the having um, that delegated to the, the lowest possible level for people to really be able to make and see change, I think is very important. Um, I would add to that, though, is having a formal direction from the most senior of the government official. They're really officials. There needs to be leadership. There needs to be government to own this, to be able to say, yes, this is a priority, and then to incorporate it into the different policies they have. So if it's an agriculture adaptation strategy, if it is a poverty reduction strategy, if it's a gender and social inclusion strategy, to ensure that these types of activities are communicated and they work across all ministries, that it's not just one single ministry who owns this, whether it's environment or forestry or water, ensuring that there's a clear message coming from the very most senior level to, to um, that this is a serious um, issue that will be addressed throughout the uh, government structures, um, both horizontally as well as uh, vertically. Uh, I agree to both of the speakers, like Nepal recently had 2017 local election, so now we have local leader who functions at local scale. Therefore, empowering this leader is essential, so the climate experts can help them raise awareness and also help them build their resilience options, and in a way, this will help to bring the projects that integrate adaptation in it. And at the same time, we need to strengthen our knowledge base as well. In Nepal, most of the projects focus more on development, but when it comes to research, it is less prioritized. So by enhancing the knowledge base, we will be able to explore the problem in depth and find out more options that is suitable for the local communities. Great, thanks everybody. Okay, let's have uh, a couple minutes of Q&A from the audience. Uh, we're gonna circulate a microphone around. If you have a question, please make sure it's short and ends in a question mark. Um, yeah, so any questions from the audience? Let's take two or three questions and then we'll come back to the panel. Great, uh, thank you so much for speaking today. Sorry, please introduce <clears throat> yourself as well. Oh, sure, hi, uh, my name is Patrick. Um, I work at Residence, which is an implementer for USAID. Um, and I'm just asking a little bit more about youth and agriculture. And so um, I know that in Nepal, for example, a lot of youth are not interested in agriculture um, for the future. So it's kind of a difficult question when you're talking about what does the future of agriculture look like when a lot of youth aren't interested. Um, and so I'm wondering when we're talking about agriculture programs in Nepal and other places, I mean, is there, are we trying to like find examples of how agriculture can be a profitable, you know, great livelihood option? Are we looking for ways that, you know, we can develop other livelihood programs in parallel to agriculture? Or, you know, is the reality that maybe live, uh, agriculture is one of few uh, livelihood options for some communities in Nepal? So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about youth, uh, you know, as it relates to agriculture in Nepal. I'm Kimberly, again, is this on? Yeah. Um, I just have a question for Carol. It's more around um, the reorg and 
um, you know, the change or transformation of the Bureau for Food Security, the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security. And just if you can get us any updates on that and what we should know from the outside of what that might look like and how it's going. And then related to that, sort of a question of as, as important as resilience is, and that's what we're here to talk about today, um, do, does the agency and the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security still have the same, I don't want to say level of commitment, because of course they do, but like, is agriculture still on the same level and development? Are we losing any of our focus on agriculture as we try to build up the issue of resilience? Okay, one more question all the way in the back here. Hi, uh, my name's Maris. Uh, I am an intern at the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, and my question has to do with language. Um, for example, um, you know, using the language in sort of strategic senses of adequate nutrition, how does, um, how does the language that we use at the planning and uh, more removed level affect how uh, effectiveness is translated? Um, I think on the ground, you would never hear someone talk about uh, getting adequate nutrition that day for oneself. That's just not language that we use when it applies to ourselves. Um, and so how does that, how does language play into the work that you um, see being done? And then on the other side of that, I think when we speak to people who are removed, for example, anyone in this room, um, we don't speak about our own food and eating and nourishment as adequate nutrition. So how does that translate to when the message is getting across to people who are both removed and people who are on the ground? Thank Great, you. thanks. It's Maris, I think. Okay, so one question. I think the, the question you're here is how we ground truth our, our outcomes that we're looking for and make sure they're meaningful to folks on the ground. Questions from Kimberly around the reorg at um, USAID. Is agriculture have a future under the new resilience paradigm? And then um, finally, the question from Patrick, you know, how do we make agriculture cool again for the youth? I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but I think it's a really, really good question and a, a, something that we're struggling with in all, lots of places around the world. So anybody on the panel can answer any of the questions you'd like to. Like I've mentioned before that youths are not interested in agriculture. So most of the youths, they want to go abroad and earn money. So it's likely that Nepal is going to be a country of remittance rather than agriculture. But we still have hope, you know, if youth see the market and benefits in agriculture, they are likely to invest on it. And that's where the government, non-government organization and donor agency can come forward, provide them with entrepreneurship activity. And if they have the seed money, maybe they can invest on in agriculture and we can prevent our country from becoming this remittance country and, have, and we can have the country with diversified livelihood opportunities. Yeah. If I could also add to that, um, a lot of times what, as, as has been brought up, young men in Nepal leave, they leave for a period of time, I think there's like 1,300 people leaving every day, so there's a significant outmigration. There's also remittances that are coming back in. The World Bank is um, mentioned, has attributed 25% of the poverty reduction actually because of remittance uh, returns to the country. So. Um, it's a challenge, but then I think part of it also presents an opportunity. I've been fortunate to be able to travel to the field, and again, this is a personal experience speaking with one, um, with a, a couple young men uh, who are farmers. They said that they would be willing to come back 
They're, they would prefer to be back in Nepal in their home country where they're not uh, working seven days a week, 12, 10 to 12 hour days. Um, but they can only come back for uh, if there's economic opportunities. And I said, well, what, what would that look like? And they said, we'd have to make about $1,000 a year in order to come back. Um, our Kisan activity is, is trying to really engage youth. We're looking at ways that you can increase agricultural productivity. We're looking at off-season vegetable production that has a higher um, rate of return. And so we're able to do that in some areas um, and depending on the commodity. I think the advantage that youth have when they come back and if we can capture them to come back and really focus on agriculture, number one, is they, they sometimes they'll come back with some seed capital. They'll have a little bit of money that they can come in, uh, come back with. A little bit more willing to take a risk. You know, they've been abroad, they've seen, they've seen the world. Um, they're a little more willing to use new technologies where a lot of times we recognize the um, risk aversion that a lot of farmers will have. So, so I think they're a really good target area. It's just how do we capture them and pull them in? And we are making efforts, but again, it's a small, it's a uh, slow, uh, long process. Um, we are able to, uh, they're also more likely to use technology, so like use a phone app to be able to look at uh, weather conditions or look at soil maps. Um, so, so I think, again, it, it's a huge opportunity if, and we are trying to tap into it, but it is challenging when you're competing with um, travel abroad. Um, do you want me to go into the RFS question directly or? Manish, were you going to add anything? Let's come back to the, I do want you to talk about that, but Manish. Okay, go ahead, girl. Um, related to the um, reorganization of uh, Bureau of Food Secu uh, Security, Resilience and Food Security, um, I really don't have any additional updates. Um, when we look at the new structure that's coming out and we look at the four centers that will be um, created, we're looking at one that is agriculture-led growth, um, focusing not just on agriculture, but the role that agriculture plays in accelerating growth within countries. We're looking at resilience. Uh, we're looking at uh, water, which uh, houses the Water for the World Act, and we're also looking at nutrition. So those centers um, really set the priorities of what, where we're moving forward. I personally feel that agriculture it has a prominent place. I think as we look at opportunities for growth and poverty alleviation, uh, the, that um, Agriculture can be a key driver of poverty alleviation. It also is a huge opportunity for growth, and we have great opportunities to increase agriculture productivity. So um, I don't feel it's uh, being lost. I think that there's significant connections between the different centers. When you look at the contribution that agriculture uh, can play towards building more resilient populations using different techniques, agriculture diversification, but then also recognizing the importance of household diversification when you're talking about um, when you're talking about improved resilience at the household level. So I feel that these pieces all come together and fit quite nicely. Um, and, but I don't have any additional updates. So. Sure, I'll. Um, I'll uh, venture into this um, this question regarding uh, I'm not 
following USAID's reorganization very closely, but that's not going to refrain me from <laughs> commenting on it. Um, <laughs> and, and just taking up a little bit Kimberly's question. One of the interesting things, so between 2010 and 2050, global demand for food is going to increase by 50%, right? If we're going to deal with more population, deal with food insecurity, and so forth. So we're going to see quite a bit of demand. That understates the challenge both in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and in South Asia. In South Asia, demand for food under that time frame is going to increase almost by twofold, and in sub-Saharan Africa by almost threefold. So the point about climate impacts having a up to 30% impact on yields when we need to double or triple yields has to be viewed in that context. And so that raises kind of this important point about integration and how, although I very much like, if I understood correctly, a center on resilience, how you stitch that work into the other centers becomes incredibly important uh, to make sure that it's not seen as a standalone, but it gets to the point that I think Christian was trying to raise in the report. But the other piece of it that's quite important is where we see the, you know, the, the pockets of pervasive extreme poverty. And if the orientation of the agricultural center is around promoting growth, how one does so in as inclusive a manner as possible, because we have seen um, history, and I used to work at the World Bank, many development agencies that have oftentimes, and that is where the Brazil versus the Africa versus the Asia stories become quite prominent. The, the differences become quite visible. So how does one think about what agricultural for growth may mean in a country like Nepal is a very interesting question. That was a polite way of saying I'm not sure how to ensure that the inclusivity, the, the focus on poverty, the type of conversation we're having today doesn't get lost from the little that I understand around a strategy which is primarily focused around agricultural for growth. I'm going to do one more round of questions, but I was just struck, Carol, by your story about the young man who said, if I could make $1,000 a year to a country that's so rich in natural resources, I would come back. I mean, if there's a case to be made for ongoing investments in agriculture, surely that is a story that helps drive the point home. I mean, that's not a whole lot of money, after all, um, for a country that's got so many rich agricultural resources. Um, a couple more questions from the audience before we conclude. So one here and then one here. Hello, my name is Ahmed and I work with the Shalade Associates. We're an international consulting firm. Uh, my question is from Carol. Uh, we have several projects at the moment and we, in the past we have worked with the World Bank and ADB and other financing institutions on uh, providing technical support on irrigation engineering in Nepal and surrounding regions. My specific question is, is there any partnership mode between USAID and other financing institutions like World Bank or ADB or DFID uh, to mobilize the resources in a way which are used more efficiently and effectively in Nepal? Uh, because I come from Afghanistan, I've seen there are like, like dozens of like donors there working on their own set of like strategies, but they do not mobilize the resources in a way which are more efficiently used. How is it working in Nepal? Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, my name is Phil Stefan from USAID, also Bureau for Food Security. 
Thank you for your report, Christian. Um, many questions come to mind, but I'm, I'm inspired by Maris's question. I believe your report says there's no word in Nepali for resilience, or culturally it's not very clear. How then do you get across, how do you communicate this concept uh, to people to encourage them to follow resilient practices? Do you break it down into subcomponents and so forth? Uh, will the word take hold? Maybe will there be a Nepali word someday? Thank you. Okay, so an interesting question here on uh, new forms of financing between multilaterals and USAID, and then a question on how you yeah, contextualize a concept that, to my knowledge, doesn't really have a, um, an, a good word for, uh, for resilience. So quick, quick, quick answers from the panel. So I have one story, like when our researchers went to field and tried to explain resilience, they said that it's something that will help you come to original state. And for that, people said, if we are going to come back to the original state, does that mean our, that we are going back to our, uh, our situation where we are going to face poverty and lack of livelihood opportunity? Is it what resilience is all about? So what we do is we say that resilience is not only coming back to original state, it actually means enhancing the way we live our life. That's how we teach them about the resilience. And yes, we have the specific Nepali term for the re resilience. I'm not sure, I think it's Purnavadan. So it's like we are still learning as well about how to explain to people the resilience. So we have said that like we link it with the events and we link it with the stress and we link it with the livelihood. That's how we teach them about the resilience. If I could just uh, take the um, question about the irrigation. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to do within um, USAID is take more of a systems approach so that the projects that we implement are not just time bound, that the impacts that we have have a longer um, have a longer time horizon. So for example, we're working with a local company to um, manufacture uh, drip irrigation systems within the country. So this is, this is a new technology, or not new technology, but it is a new approach, um, a new company that where drip irrigation systems were previously imported into the country. So what, what we're trying to do is be able to increase the capacity locally to be able to create some of the systems. We're working to uh, work with farmers to be able to access finance so that they can then in turn take out small loans um, in order to, be, to uh, purchase small-scale irrigation systems. And we're also working with the agro-dealers um, so that they can carry these, so that people in the remote areas in the, in the um, far western hills or the midwestern hill area, they can actually purchase the drip irrigation system. They can actually put up the poly houses and have uh, and double and triple their incomes is what we're seeing. Um, so rather than just do a project to projectize 
an activity, we're really trying to focus on how do we create that system. The other half of that then is the market system. How are farmers able to aggregate their production? How are they able to best link to the markets? And how do we create strength in that and also resilient systems so that if a farmer can't, if his primary buyer isn't available or isn't willing to pay the price that the farmer needs and demands and knows the market is willing to bear, that they can go in and he can have, he can call another trader. So trying to create a competitive environment um, that really focuses on market systems is what we're working at. Um, we also have regular- Carol, I gotta cut you off, we're okay. at time. Thanks, Manish, any final thoughts for us? Very briefly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, no, no I, just one, one final just reflection that um, I, I was struck by the fact that there isn't necessarily a word in Nepali that uh, conveys kind of resilience, but I don't think the lack of a word in any way reflects what is actually happening in Nepal and in that region. I, I worked 20 years ago in the foothills of the Himalayas. Um, four months ago, I was in Bangladesh. Um, we had a meeting of the Global Commission on Adaptation. We had people on the front lines. They, they know what resilience is. They're facing this for decades. Whether or not there's a word, I think, is a fair question about how we use language. There were some good questions raised about that. But I think there's just um, an incredible richness of experience um, around what resilience means that we can draw from communities in the area. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Be sure to pick up a copy of your report, and have a nice day. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.